Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Taku, hosted by the ladies of Anime Trending. We are back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I'm joined by... Hello, I am Isabel, and... This is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Taku today will be about our favorite character development. And there's a good reason why we want to talk about it, because character development is important. It's important to storytelling, it's important to characters, and it's important to how the audience bonds with the, with the character and, you know, develop their emotions with their journey. And so today, we just want to highlight the character developments that we have that has made an impact and we think are some of the best. So because I have a feeling mine might potentially get poached, I'm just going to, and I'm the host, so I'm just going to go first. Oh, wow, <laughs> exercising your privileges as the host. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, my first one is uh, Violet Evergarden. I really enjoyed the anime. Um, there's a lot of reasons for me to enjoy it, obviously. For example, I, I've talked about in my review, and I really like its concept of love and its theme of love because instead of just focusing on romantic love, which is absolutely what they could have done, they explored all aspects of love, from platonic love to familial love to even stuff like passion love, you know, pursuing your passions, pursuing your hobbies, doing what you want to do and fulfilling your dreams. That is a type of love. It's a type of self-love. And so for that reason, I've always liked Violet Evergarden. And then, of course, Kyoto Animation has its beautiful animation and its music and stuff. But I think a big thing of why Violet Evergarden worked so well for me is how love is used as the means for Violet Evergarden. That's her full name, <laughs> Violet Evergarden, to develop. Because at the start of the series, I genuinely was concerned because she was so flat in personality. She had very little intonations in the way she talks. She was very socially inept. She doesn't understand anything. And we realized from her backstory, it's because she is a child soldier before she was found by uh, the country that she's currently in and was taken under um, was taken under the care of Gilbert, who in a way raised her per se. And essentially, he was still fighting a war when he took her under his wing. And so because of that, war doesn't give child soldiers a great spot to develop more emotionally and socially. So it makes sense why she's so out of it at the beginning of the series. But it's just her personality just fell a little like plain because of the fact that she has nothing going out on about her especially with the way she talks with how flat she is and how little she understands things and uh, and how little she empathizes because she doesn't really get empathy and stuff like that but the way that she takes her clients who are requesting for her to write letters for them and the way that she builds upon these stories of different kinds of love and it teaches her empathy and it teaches her sympathy and it also teaches her self-love more than anything else because you know she's a child soldier so she doesn't really understand the concept of self-love it really just transformed her so wonderfully and beautifully in a way that still sticks with me today when I think back to it one of my favorite episodes was definitely there's like a parallel happening between the earlier episodes and the later episodes because in the earlier episode she helps a father who lost his daughter to an illness and the father is a writer who has reached a writer's block understandably because his story he originally was writing for his daughter and then his daughter died and so he she was employed to sort of help him finish his work but it was through his love for his deceased daughter that she was starting to learn and understand the idea of family and, you know, the idea of parental love for their children. And, you know, and there's also this childlike love of magic and childlike love of wonder that she learns through understanding and hearing stories about the daughter from the grieving father or her client. And so that was at the very beginning where her personality wasn't really set in stone, where really in a way she didn't really have much of a personality because of like everything that's been 
sort of programmed into her brain as a child soldier. But then we have that parallel where after the second half of the series, she has a new client and the new client is a mother who is dying and has um, and basically hires Violet to compile I forgot how many letters it was it was like 50 or more essentially and it was a letter for every year that she would be gone from her child's life but her child would still be able to hear her voice and hear her messages and hear her words of encouragement and it was just such a perfect parallel because at that point, Violet has gone through a lot of different clients and learned a lot from her clients and helping these clients connect to the people or the things that they love. And so instead of in the first time where she helps, you know, a grieving parent with a child where she doesn't really understand and she has to ask a lot of questions and it ends with her finally understanding and her sort of real her sort of like clicking where she understands also inspires the author again because it reminds her of childlike wonder and it reminds her of his own daughter in this case she has become on the side of the mother instead where she has to hold back her tears so the daughter doesn't realize you know why she's here and the daughter doesn't realize you know why she has been employed to spend so much time with her mom to write letters instead of letting her mom spend as much time with her daughter with the little time she has left. And she goes back to um, her workplace and she just bursts into tears and is unable to hold it back. And she was like, it's so hard. It was so hard. And she says a point that was really poignant to me that really shows like how far her development has gone, which is she was like, I know there was once a time where I probably wouldn't have even understood why the mom was doing what she does. And now I can't even fathom what I was like back then to not understand it. Because right now I understand so much of this and feel so much of this and it hurts so badly. And it, but and it was so beautiful, but also so tragic and hard to have to see this happen between this mom and this daughter. And so and I was like, perfect. It's perfect. You know, <laughs> it's a perfect parallel of the child and the parent situation. And it really just shows how much she has grown. And so so that's why, like, I I still adore Violet Evergarden. There's just so many great stories told in the episodic format and it really just lends so, so well. And I think it's so perfect with how flat and almost characterless she was at the beginning. And unfortunately, some people actually dropped the anime because of those first few episodes, because she was so, quote unquote, boring, because she had nothing going on with her. But now it's like, but I'm like, you know, you guys are missing out on a big journey in regards to how she was before and how she is now, because it is such a huge difference. And it was in a way very poignant and also very emotional to see. Um, I know one of my roommates uh, in the or one of my college roommates really loved it. And she basically said she was like, Violet Evergarden is a painting like it is a painting and it's gorgeous and it's masterful and that's how I feel at least about Ever Violet Evergarden's character development so um so that's the first one I wanted to highlight I'm curious did any of you do watch it I I know it was big at a point but there's so much anime so quickly nowadays that even like really good ones in the past tend to get forgotten very easily so uh so I actually don't know if any of you guys have seen it <laughs> Yeah, I actually haven't. I did hype it up for my college roommates. So what happened was I hyped it up and then my college roommates watched it and I didn't and I still haven't. So I feel bad <laughs> and they still attack me. Isabel! It, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're all, we're all very busy folks anyway. So at one point, because that was kind of the same way for me too. I remember when Violet Evergarden came out, I was still in college at the time. I was hyping it up for one of my partners in chemistry so we would be doing the experiment with another person and while we would wait for our our reagent to like evaporate and form precipitates we would literally spend that one hour of waiting for the precipitate to form to watch an episode of evergarden like right in front of the field <laughs> we would just sit there and we would just watch I but i do remember kind of falling off the edge with violet evergarden since we got like so busy mm -hmm. Versus a lot of my other friends have seen Violet Evergarden and they praise it to like the moon and back, which I totally get, especially seeing the reception at anime trending. 
But like you said, because we're all pretty busy and the and there's so much anime that flies past us, it's kind of hard to pick it back up again. Yeah, so that was going to be my question then. Like, you know, what about the friends that you did hype it up for that did watch it to its completion? Did they like it? You know, like that was... They cried a lot. <laughs> That's <laughs> the consensus. That. They talk about it all Yeah, the they really loved it. Mm-hmm. But I remember yeah. reading your review, uh, Gracie, like, you know, if you had to talk about any anything that might have been wrong with Violet Evergarden is definitely that first part, like you said, that might feel slow because this once feels like a slice of life. And the fact that, you know, the character development probably uh, goes line, uh, goes hand in hand with that because I feel like with that progression, um, with the plot, I feel like it might be something that, you know, people might not be on board with in the first few episodes. But later on, I think, like you said, it, it really, really shines. It really does. And that's why I said it's sad because I've met people at anime conventions who are like, oh my God, the first two episodes were so slow. She's such a boring character and stuff like that. And I immediately knew, I'm like, you did not finish that series and you did not feel the journey of what it actually was. Because it's like, because I also admit it was frustrating for me to see her at the beginning because she really did have like so little social understanding and she really just, had no personality and it's sad to think that you know there's a very specific reason as to why she doesn't have a personality but you know it's frustrating for people to watch per se but it was worth it it was absolutely worth it in the end and I really really uh, suggest for people to hold on even if those first two episodes feel so slow and she feels so flat because there is this isn't just a flat character to be a flat character situation this is very purposefully set up for character development situation and it just worked so so beautifully from how she doesn't even understand why people cry in the first place which makes sense because she's gone through she's seen so much atrocity ever since she was a child so you know if that can't make her cry because that has become her reality and her normality you know the other stuff might seem really dumb to cry about from that to in one of the later episodes where she um I like kind of tear up every time I think about it too. So uh, where she manages to deliver a, the last letter of a soldier who died back to his family and back to his lover who is waiting for him. Um, They like, they basically called her to come back and they hugged her and everything because for them, like she was a miracle worker, you know, they, she delivered what is essentially their loved one's last thoughts and last words. And it means the world to them, but she like breaks down to tears because she was like, I couldn't bring him home. Like I found him and I was able to write down his last thoughts and stuff, but I couldn't bring him back. And it's and it's so insane because, you know, like at the beginning, she in a way, she almost misses the war at the beginning because that's what she was used to. And that's what she's always known. And now she's just like, you know, like, I don't I want that thing to be over with. And I want just all these people to go home and to be mm-hmm. able to see their families again and stuff like that. And I'm like, it's beautiful. like <laughs> It's so good. So, um, so, yeah, so that's my first character development. I want to talk about the second one is the one I was scared someone might poach. So that's why it's Yona for Akatsuki no Yona or Yona okay. the Don. I despised Yona at the beginning. <laughs> I which one did you were you too as annoyed with her at the beginning as I was because I was very annoyed with her. <laughs> no, because I'm a manga reader. So uh, <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen. Okay, okay. What about you? Is so I, I was more amused. <laughs> I know, yeah, I was pretty much annoyed, like, the first episode, I'm like, come on, are, is this really going to be a story about her, or are we going to focus on someone else? But yeah, I totally yeah, Yes, exactly, I found her so annoying, and it's not just me, literally every friend that I have suggested this anime to, they come back to me, and they're like, Yona is so effing annoying, <laughs> and, so, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, why are you making me watch this, and I have to be like, please wait please wait, I promise. Like, I'm not, I didn't just suggest this to torture you guys because Yona starts off extraordinarily naive and bratty. She, um, she's idealistic and her, like a diehard romantic. She's mean to Hawk, which wasn't nice for me to watch because Hawk is so 
nice to her. I'll, I'll bet like they did both tease each other, but he she is like meaner to him, and he just yeah takes she's a brat. Yes, yeah, she's a brat, and she's an imperial like. A sheltered brat who wants nothing more than to get Suwoon's affection. Yes, and she like complains to her dad. She complains about everyone. And then when stuff happens that I won't spoil, but you know, stuff happens, she was utterly useless after that too. Like she keeps tripping and falling and crying. I was like, girl, like I'm like, your situation has changed, whether you like it or not. Like, get your head on straight, sort of thing. It was so frustrating to me, like how much I didn't like her, but Oh boy, was I in for a journey because, yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, her development in that anime is absolutely, utterly amazing. Like, I, I'm just going to say it straight out now. Like, by the time the second core finished, she was an absolute badass. She was such a badass that I actually went ahead and started reading the manga because I was like, I need to know what happens next. I need to know what happens to her and stuff like that. The way that she has grown from that really naive, spoiled princess who wants everything to go her way or the highway and complains to like the leader that she is now where she strategizes. She she knows how to fight. Obviously, she's not as good still as um, a lot of the warrior characters for good reason. They're warriors. They were trained since children. So <laughs> she definitely didn't have that training since she was children. But she's learned how to fight for herself, which is great because she does need to. She's in a very dangerous situation. But the most important part of all is that she has so much agency as a character. Like she understands uh, and she's learning politics. She's learning culture. And definitely one of the most defining moments for me in the anime that I thought was so powerful was she recognized that as much as she loved her father, her father wasn't the best leader at all. And that's a really hard thing to reconcile with, to be like, I know that my father, my parent was a good parent, but they weren't the best person. And so it, that, like, like I said, that's that's a morally gray thing. That's really hard because, you know, when you love someone, you don't really want to think of them flawed in any other way. But it becomes even harder because because it's so consequential because he is the emperor and he was a bad person at the job that means that other people suffered because of his inadequacies while being a really loving and affectionate dad and so like and to have to be able to accept that and openly acknowledge that and be like i need to do better is insane it's absolutely insane and not a lot of people even like you know in modern days can do that much less back in the past where your title and your position are basically your entire pride and identity and so i i just don't want to spoil too much of the journey per se but yona's development is just absolutely amazing and it, it's so it's like my memory of her being so annoying where I was rolling my eyes and being like, please, girl, like, get it together. You're so annoying. Like, that sort of mindset feels so far away, and I feel so detached to it, to how I feel about her now. So, yes, Akatsuki no Yoda has amazing character development. It has amazing characters as a whole, and basically this is a plea for Studio Pirate to please just animate more of it. <laughs> more of the story give us a second season so um but oh yeah and isabel like where do you like i don't remember anymore like the moment where i no longer felt annoyed with her but do you remember the moment i'm just curious <laughs> no yeah i really can't that's that's why her development's so good because it it like happens progressively kind of when she's going on adventure and maybe maybe we're being distracted by the dragons but i feel like yeah, it happens so gradually that it's not like a sharp change either. So if that happened, then we would be like, no, that doesn't make sense. But the fact that she changes naturally, she realizes these things, I think it's like smaller things that she notices and then she changes her attitude based on that, I think is is really what uh, made me like her more throughout the series. And I, yeah, I can't even tell you which episode or what arc that happened. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, so those are my two favorite character developments that I would like to highlight. Obviously, there's a lot more amazing character developments per se. 
Uh, but these are just the two that stuck out most to me. And it sounds like I didn't poach anyone for a, for a Yona from Akatsuki no Yona, which I am very surprised on because we have all said that Yona's character development is incredible. So with that being said, I am really curious, Isabel, you know, like what are your two picks for your favorite character development? You know, which ones have stood out to you the most? <laughs> No, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you went with female characters because I was actually having a super hard time finding characters I wanted to talk about. Really? Um, okay. Like me, <laughs> me female too. characters. Yeah. So I went with sports. So now we're going to talk about sports anime. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so rare that we talk about sports anime on this channel. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been watching sports for a long time. I used to watch them like throughout middle school, high school, all the time. And. Uh, the one I want to highlight is one that I actually finally uh, got a chance to watch, which is uh, Ping Pong the Animation. Oh, okay. interesting. Okay, tell us more. Yeah. I didn't have a chance to watch Ping Pong, but I heard it was really good. It is good. The animation itself is subjective for everyone because it's it's basically like coming off of the manga. It's very it's very rough. I want to say so. I would say the animation's not for everyone, but I think the stories that are in it, especially the two main characters. And the other characters as well are like really well written and they're definitely relatable. And I think that's the reason why I'm drawn to sports anime as well, because I was like, I wanted to try like every single sport in middle school, high school. I want to be on every <laughs> single team. So, but of course, I can't be on every team because I'm not that good at, at all the sports. But yeah, um, Ping Pong animation, you know, uh, goes over with two characters, Smile and Peckle. And those two are the main drivers of the series. The one I actually want to focus on is kind of a main antagonist that you think. Is, his name is uh, Kong Wenge. And he's actually a player from China who comes to Japan. And um, the basic story is that Peko and Smile have been playing you know, ping pong for a while since they were children. Um, Peko is like a genius. So he's like a prodigy. But he like is careless about things. So he doesn't care about other people. He easily beats other characters. And so he's just kind of like nonchalant about it because he's so good, right? On the other hand, you have Smile who works hard, and um, but he doesn't care that much about ping pong itself. He doesn't really care that much about the game, and so he they just he just kind of plays along with Peko. He lets him win sometimes, but Peko doesn't know that. He just thinks he's the best. Um, so those two characters also go through a development. When one um, good comes into the story, he's he's kicked out of China basically to come to Japan. And when he sees them playing each other, he's like, smile, why are you letting him win? That does, You shouldn't be playing the game like that. And I feel like his character development comes when he smashes, um, he smashes Peko in one of the matches. And, um, um, and then when he faces Smile, though, Smile has been training hard and he, he actually beats Wenge. And it's kind of a shock to Wenge because um, he's surprised that, you know, he, someone in Japan can play so well, even though he had been on teams in China and stuff like that and and then when it actually t comes time for the tournament Smile even get, gets even better but he actually decides to kind of let Wenge lose because or Wenge win so he decides to lose um, because Wenge wants to go home he wants to prove to his team that you know his team in China that he can come back he's still one of the greatest characters um, mm. or at least team players but yeah, he's a hard time seeing that, but when he gets, you know, reality slapped in his face and the fact that he he feels frustrated that even though he won, it feels like he lost. And then in the next match, he loses as well, so it's kind of like a slap to him, like, oh, these Japanese players are actually kind of good, and he can't just judge them like that. So it's like kind of him realizing that and then going through the journey of, you know, trying to, he ends up becoming a coach, actually, for one of the Japanese teams. So instead of play being a player, he kind of takes a step back, um, trains the other characters and his own team. So he maybe his Japanese team, you know, can participate in the finals or something like that. So seeing him giving, giving up that competitive spirit and then just, um, you know, becoming a coach and stuff like that. Um, instead of focusing on himself, he kind of looks at what other people are doing and how he can improve himself and, uh, and help others, really, because I think... He at, at the end of it, you know, he really likes the sport and he really likes the competitive nature. So I thought it was amazing to see someone who was like so arrogant and someone who looked down on others so much become kind of like a mother to the characters. Mm. Or <laughs> he actually takes one of them yeah. 
his mom mom comes over and he's like yo team let's go we're gonna go like make some i think they make buns or something i totally forget but yeah they all start making food together it, it reminds me of that episode in uh, Run with the Wind where Haiji makes them all cook or eat or something together. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it feels like that. So he becomes kind of like uh, a, a mom and I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's so different. And he's really supportive of the other characters. He's always watching, you know, Smile and Peko play together and um, some of the other characters too, just giving his input. So I feel like even though he's he was an antagonist in the beginning, the fact that he became... Um, a better side character really stands out to me in the anime. Like, it's a very nice path to steer an antagonist towards that you don't need to have them be redeemed in a sense and have everyone be like happy-go-lucky nakama power kind of thing. But that it takes a very realistic approach and that he changes from somebody who is blinded by his own arrogance of returning home to somebody who realizes the, the truer value of forming a team and helping those who actually have better talent than him. So the part that I think I find fascinating is you don't usually see Chinese characters as a oh, yes. character in Japanese mediums. And it's also in- it's interesting to me as well because Japanese, Japan and China's relationship has throughout history been contentious to say the least. You know, World War II did not help, to say the least, uh, without question. And uh, the rep- repercu- the repercussions of what Japan has done to countries in World War II still continues today, as we have touched very briefly upon in our last episode. And so it's always interesting for me to see uh, a Chinese character portrayed in or to hear them portrayed in a Japanese medium and not even just like as a support character, but from what it sounds like a pretty important character and integral to the plot. So that by itself was already surprising to me and not something I was expecting at all. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad he was put in. Like when he came into this, uh, you know, in the series, I was like, oh, this character is kind of interesting. He looks kind of obnoxious because he wears like big sunglasses and stuff. And like, he thinks oh my he's like gosh. the coolest person ever. <laughs> It's, it's just <laughs> hilarious to me. So, but yeah, definitely. Uh, so that's my first pick. Um, the second pick I have is from Ace of Diamond, and we are going Ooh. with Sawamura. Sawamura. Um, and I know Ace of Diamond is like a long, long series. There's like three seasons of it, and episodes are like fifty episodes long each. I feel like. Wow, that is long. (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised I even stuck throughout all the episodes because, well, baseball is not too much of a fun sport unless, you know, there's some hits or bats and stuff like that. But I think the fact that I like watching baseball by itself really added to the fact that I like the show. And uh, Samamura as a character actually really annoyed me in the beginning, kind of like Yona in a sense. <laughs> Don't you love it when the characters we end up loving are the ones that we hated at the beginning? <laughs> exactly. I honestly think I wouldn't like him, but yeah, in the beginning, he's just so he's you know he joins the team and he's like the loudest hothead there is, and he tries to um you know to say like, hey, I'm the best pitcher there is and stuff like that, but. And that's probably because coming from his middle school team, he was like the best on his team. So, you know, and then when he goes to a team in high school that focuses only on baseball, really, and they're known for baseball, he quickly realizes that he's not the best anymore. Or rather, there are other people Mm. that are better than him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it takes, he's a really slow learner as well. So, you know, he kind of fights with almost everyone on the team that doesn't really like him either because he just really stands out to everyone. It's like he's late to practice or something and he messes up. He's the one doing extra laps or eating more or something like that because he's not following directions properly. <laughs> so yeah, people on the team don't like him that much. And then it's it's so interesting to see him kind of work through that and try to work with the team really. And like he works on an individual level with each of the characters and he kind of does a 180 so he like he realizes that he's not that great so he starts following other characters and trying to become more friendly with them and Mm -hmm. he even becomes like he starts respecting his um 
the seniors in the group more as well because at first he wasn't he's he um he was paired with one of the seniors and there's supposed to between a pitcher and a catcher and so that's called a, like a battery and so he forms a group with him and another senior whose name is Chris and I feel like that was one of the best parts in that when they you know started together they didn't like each other like uh, Samura didn't like Chris because he seemed emotionless. He didn't. He he followed everything by the book. He had like a set rule that he wanted Samura to work on, but Samura didn't want to do that. He wanted to focus on other pitches. He wants to focus on cool pitches, right? And um, so he you know argues with him. But Miyuki, the captain, comes in and tells him, you know, you shouldn't be telling that because you don't know Chris's backstory. So the reason why uh, Chris is like that is because you know he had an injury before. He really wants to play, but he can't be on the the main team because he has this injury so you know Samurai didn't know that and I feel like he really developed in the sense that he went back to Chris and actually apologized to him so I think that starts you know that started their you know friendship kind of um to work together as a team more and then by realizing that he realizes you know everyone else also has a backstory of reason the reason why they want to play baseball obviously that's why they're at this school and so he, he realizes that it's not only him, it's not only the pitcher that carries the team, right? Every single character or every single player has to do their own part. And they, you know, he, they are specialized. They specialize in their role, whether it's being a catcher or outfielder or stuff like that. And even the coach. So, um, so it's interesting to see him develop through that. And then towards the end or like closer to the end, the last arc, I feel like, he becomes like a lovable dork. He encourages all of his teammates. He's like, hey, I saw your pitch. Nice. Or something like that. He, Aww. He, Aww. He's so wholesome. He's really, really wholesome. Like he learns from his mistakes so well that like he takes that and then he encourages others. Hey, like you can do better or something like that. He's always encouraging. He's the first one to speak to, um, obviously, because he's loud. So like even if, if he's in the bullpen watching his other pitchers, he's always encouraging them and stuff like that. Even though he's like, I want to play. I'm sitting on the bench, but I really want to play. But I have to encourage <laughs> my teammates as well. It's kind of his new attitude that he's developed. That's really great, though, for, for him to change like that and become. Because that really is the sign of leadership, too. You know, to be like, I really want to do this, but other people need their chances or other people might be better than me. So they should do it um, for the sake of the betterment of the team. So that really is pretty insane that he went from hot headed and picking fights with people to <laughs> being that dork on the bench, supporting them and yelling out, uh, yelling out encouragements like that's really cute. <laughs> Yeah, it's like great in contrast with his rival pitcher. There's another um, character named Furuya who's kind of like a ice cold pitcher, but he pitches really well. And he actually takes like the first, I believe maybe the first or second season, he's a main pitcher and Sawamura is on the second team sitting on the bench watching him. But mm -hmm. when Sawamura actually develops, you know, his skill, Furuya actually admits to him like, hey, I think you're the ace of our team because you know, he's grown so much as a character, as a player, <gasps> as a pitcher. And the fact that he got that acknowledgement from someone else who's pretty much been at the top of the team is just crazy to me. Oh, that's mm -hmm. so sweet. <laughs> that makes me really happy. It's like warm and fuzzy <laughs> feeling of the development. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, I would like to know, I find it funny how at the beginning, Isabel, you said that baseball isn't a particularly interesting sport, but then you also say you enjoy watching it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what is it? Is it interesting then or is it not interesting, I Isabel? I know, it's like, things. like it's sometimes like, the first seven innings I'm sitting there like if it's like zero zero I'm just like when are they gonna get a point you know it's not as fun <laughs> as basketball where you know they go back and forth and there's yeah like, basketball's faster basketball's yeah. a lot faster yeah <laughs> yeah I remember having a conversation with my mom about the two sports because she used to watch basketball a lot between high school and college and she said like yeah well in baseball you're literally sitting in the sun for seven hours waiting for one inning mm -hmm. Right? And versus, like, in basketball, everything's over in an hour. Is it so, really that big think, of a time difference? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, the people can sit outside. Baseball has very long um, innings and outings, and there's really a difficult – it's a lot more difficult, I guess, to get a tiebreaker as compared to basketball where everything's much faster. Yeah, yeah. 
Because it's like basketball, yeah. like in baseball, a team could potentially never get a point. But basketball, that's impossible. Like people, the teams will get points no matter what. It's just like. Yeah, because he always gets points. You get points by shooting hoops. Right? right, yeah. Versus in baseball, it's more drawn out and trying to, you know, adjust your pitches and your wide arcs. And things that I guess more of the fact to prolong the other team from scoring a point. So there's different objectives uh, yeah. being um, incurred versus a lot of more modern day sports similar to basketball are much faster and they end quicker. Same thing with like soccer too. Soccer is actually pretty quick too. I was about to, I was going to say like soccer, I guess is a little similar to baseball in that sometimes a team might not score a point at all, but it still does feel faster than baseball does. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And did you watch Ace of Diamonds, uh, Agnes? Because you did react to it. I didn't watch it, so. <laughs> oh, no, I just know it because it's such a, a big fandom community for, since like forever since it came out. So I'm just kind of aware of it on my radar, but I never actually dive into it because I'm actually not interested in baseball. Uh, there we go. <laughs> my My interest in sports is very limited, um, mainly because the sport itself is not exciting for me. So, so which sports do you like? Now we're on like a tangent, but I am curious. Oh, uh, we're on a tangent. Uh, I like martial arts instead. It's faster. It's quicker. It's bloodier. It's bloodier, jeez. Um, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a bit invigorating to watch. I mean, boxing is fun to watch too. Um, there's some sentimentality if you're watching. I guess some aspects of wrestling as well. I haven't gotten too far into wrestling. I just know it from friends. But other than that, that's pretty much what I'm limited to. I grew up actually watching more tennis because my dad was a big tennis mm. fan. Mm. Uh, but even I found tennis a bit boring. And I'm actually not very good with ball, uh, um, uh, hand-eye feet coordination with balls in general. Interesting. Yeah, so my because I'm bad at it, I naturally very much like not doesn't even bother to watch it because I'm just like, okay, whatever. I don't really understand it. So there's no point in me trying to engage in a sport that I'm bad at anyway. Interesting. And Isabel, did did you ever do any of the sports that, of the sports anime that you've seen? Honestly, no, nothing competitive other than running cross country. So that's the only thing I actually ever did was on a team. I did try to join the basketball team a few times, but yeah, it was not working out. <laughs> Yeah, there's also the concept of teams that I don't like in sports because I've always done martial arts or ballet, which is all very solo oriented. So the whole idea of like getting together with your teammates and like trying to hash things out, I, it wasn't just my thing. <laughs> so I, I am having Kageyama vibes of first season Kageyama when he was like, <laughs> I wish I could set pitch and or I could set spike and receive all by myself. <laughs> I think so, because when I started, when I tried to play volleyball, because I was partially inspired after reading Haikyuu to play volleyball, I kind of found my body reacting quicker to try to get every single, to be in part of every single position, even though I'm like bad at it, because I'm so used to doing everything solo versus like in volleyball, you have to trust people in it. And I was just like, oh, this feels weird. I don't really like it. <laughs> okay, so Agnes isn't great at teamwork, is what I'm getting out of this. <laughs> Obviously, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not the most ideal person for teamwork. I'm good at helping people out if they need it, like in an emergency, but actually like, being a team leader, nah, that's not my forte. I'll leave that to somebody else. <laughs> All right. So I guess out of curiosity, then, in your favorite character development uh, that you have picked, did any of them become a team leader or are they still, are they a different kind of character development? <laughs> They're a different kind of character development. <laughs> um, uh, I think this is the great uh, part that for me. Right, is this my turn now? Yeah. Or is this yes. still Isabel's? Right. Oh, it's my turn. This is a weird segue because we usually kind of introduce it. <laughs> so I was a little bit confused. I was like, wait a second. Okay. So for mine, I have like a whole list. You did poach Yona from my list. So I was like, Ooh. okay, I can, I can content. I, I can live with that. I purposely made a list so that in case someone poached, I had a backup. I've learned from my mistakes. <laughs> you from your mistakes. <laughs> So I picked out a couple of them, and then as I was narrowing down the list, I realized that there are two characters that can come from the same author, but they represent something completely different in terms of character development. Okay. And I would like to highlight um, uh, Hiromu Arakawa's series, her two most famous famous series as thus far. The first one is Full Metal Alchemist, with the greatest character development shown in Greed. Ah, <gasps> uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Green is is he's kind of reminds me a lot of um the character the what was it DC or Marvel with Venom. Oh, where he kind of like inhabit where he kind of like inhabits somebody's body, and he's he's a jack. He's a jerk. Um, he's a charismatic he one, wants. though. <laughs> he's charismatic, but he's also a jerk. He's a jack that really takes advantage of other people. And at the beginning, when you meet him, you see him as an antagonist, uh, both in the originals and also in the reboot, regardless of which one you watch. And they don't paint him in a very nice light either at the very beginning. Sure, he has like a comrade. Uh, he has like a little group of comrades that he goes around with, but he's very much of somebody who's a, um, a thorn in the father's side and somebody that has, that should be eliminated because he's kind of the outlier. But also he poses a huge threat to Edward and Alphonse trying to find the Philosopher's Stone. And as a result, you kind of like don't really vibe with greed because he feels like the antagonist. But then over time, after he confines himself into Ling's body and travels with him throughout all of the seasons in Fullmetal Alchemist, he actually starts to change. And I think it's mainly because of living inside of Ling for so long that he starts to pick up a lot of Ling's good-natured habits, a lot of Ling's own personal sense of justice, and then kind of warping it around his own ideals and kind of trying to play it off. It was like, oh, I, I am, I'm still the Jack. Yeah, but I have principles now. <laughs> um, so I just found that very amusing. And then right at the very end, when he sacrifices himself to deliver the finish, to help deliver the finishing blow to father, he says that all he ever wanted in this world, even though he's so avaricious, he's so greedy, that he had everything that he wanted, all he wanted was human connection and friends, which he didn't really think that he had acquired until Ling just yelled at him. He says, like, but of course we're friends! And I think that kind of broke me at the end. What's interesting is that I have always liked Greed, even when he wasn't a protagonist yet, because he was so chill in a weird way. Because, like, he, he was greedy and he wanted everything, but also he was chill because it was just like when one of the homunculus, oh, no, sorry, when one of the chimeras who uh, worked with him, like, you know, smashed his head off and then he just grows it back and he was like, can you smash it off cleaner next time? Like, it doesn't feel really great <laughs> on my neck yeah. when you smash it not as clean, like, sort of thing. But I think um, there's two things going on with greed because the first thing is I've always said that my biggest sin, if, like, each of us have a biggest sin we have to deal with, mine is has always been greed. I, when I want stuff, I want stuff and I go get it. And I do not hesitate to go get the stuff that I want and I won't, like, back down until I get it sort of thing. And the other thing, obviously, is that greed was already against father from the very beginning. And on one hand, yes, he did break out the chimeras, which, you know, you could say he did it so he could use them. But on the other hand, the chimeras are still humans, you know, they still have, they still have an understanding of bonds and relationships, and there's a part of them that, like, they, even though Greed himself claims that they're his possessions, everyone else knows better, including the chimeras themselves know better, because that's why they stay with him, and they're so loyal to him, even though when Bradley comes around, oh god, big spoilers, but this is an old anime, so I feel less bad about it, but um, <laughs> when Bradley comes around, they knew they were going to die, but they didn't care because they wanted to buy him some time. Like, no one would do that unless they do know that the bond they have with that person is real. And that's what, and that is the character development of Greed was because his second iteration, his first iteration was in denial of what was most important, which is mm, what the Khmeras yeah. were to him. And in the second iteration, that was when Ling had that amazing, one of my favorite scenes. Also, the English dub was so good in this scene. When Ling yelled at Greed after Greed regained his memories and and Ling went, uh, you know, and Ling went like, you know, those were your family and your friends and you threw them away like trash, you fool. If you throw away something that you desperately wanted, are you even allowed to call yourself Greed? And I was like, holy! <laughs> Ling literally calling out all of Greed's principles, which I think was like you said, a really great turning point in Greed, realizing that his self-denial isn't going to make him 
uh, some cool character and it's okay to accept the fact that he just wanted friends and wanted to be in the company of humans. Yes, exactly. And it was just, uh, and Greed became MVP from then on. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Ling had, Ling is probably the goofiest character in Fullmetal Altimus, but he has like the sickest birds. He's the most savage, I would oh, say. Oh yeah. I also really love Greed and Ling's bromance because, uh, you know, Greed is a player. He likes girls. He likes women, you know, or I should say women because he does only go after girls at legal ages. And so, um, so he likes women, but he never tries to hit on Longfall or anything because he knows like there's something going on between Longfall and Lean. And so it's like, that's Ling's, you know, he's not going to touch <laughs> someone else's. He just wants his own, you know, sort of thing, which also is a pretty good an, an example of an antithesis between Envy and Greed, and which Envy yeah. and Greed did not get along either. And it No, because Envy, Envy takes what they want from everyone just so that they can make others feel unhappy as they are unhappy, but Greed takes what he wants just because for the hell of yes, it. Yes, exactly. Greed's not the one who sees someone with something and be like, I like and be like, I I don't want that person to have it, you know, or like I want to take it from them. He's just, I'll find one myself, you know, sort of thing. Versus envy, which is exactly that. It's the whole mindset of if I can't have it, no one can, sort of thing, which is also what makes envy so dangerous in the first place, because that's a terribly poisonous thought to have, to not want someone else to have it just because you don't have it. Like, ugh, like, that's just so dangerous. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, but I do love Greed, and I, I do think his character, I, that, that whole story is chock full of character development. But Greed Absolutely. really yeah. is just amazing, is an amazing character, and was an amazing development to the story. I I haven't given Isabel any time to talk, so Isabel. <laughs> <laughs> Gracie just, like, took all of my spotlight just to yell about Greed. <laughs> I, I, you guys knew FMAB is my favorite, all-time favorite an an anime, so this was to be expected. But please, Isabel, go ahead now. <laughs> No, yeah, I really want to just turn it back to Agnes because I really have nothing more to say. I also like Greed as a character and his relationship with Ling. Every t I was always waiting for, you know, Greed to pop up in the anime. Like, when is Greed coming back? When can we have this guy? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, really. When pride is a pain in the ass and you're just like, man, I wish Greed was here. <laughs> <laughs> I have a quick question for you, uh, Agnes. Since there is so much character development in this manga or the story as a whole, what made greed be the ultimate ultimate one that stood out to you out of all the ones that were present hmm, that's a good question i think it was probably my introduction to liking villains more as a character rather than protagonists and side characters okay okay understood yeah just mainly because they're a lot more complicating and they were able to reconcile that by making greed also be friends with the main group mm -hmm. But also kind of not at the same time. So that was a little bit refreshing when I was watching it. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So in regards to uh, Hiromu Arakawa-sensei's work, this is the first one. So what is the second work that you want to highlight and the character development involved in it? The second one, I want to say, feels much more subtle if you've watched Silver Spoon. And I wanted to highlight Hachiken from his character development from oh. throughout season one through season two. <laughs> And I want to start off by saying, like, I understand how Hachikin feels at the very beginning, where he kind of comes off as a little bit arrogant, thinking to himself, like, why am I going to an agricultural school, even though he kind of set himself up for it. And he kind of feels like, oh, I'm going to be fine. It's going to be whatever. And I'm like, I'm a little and he kind of gives a slight edge of I'm a little bit smarter than they are. I'll be fine. And then right at the moment, it hits him that he's actually not going to be fine because there's so much that he doesn't know and understand from working in the countryside and also really not completely understanding how farmers feel like in the modern age where there is so much agricultural production rather than just a simple farmer living their life milking cows all day or selling their produce. 
And this really exemplifies, I think, past into season two, when Hachikin feels that he can help Mikage study for her college exams because Mikage wants to work with horses. But to work with horses, she requires at least a college degree, or at least her parents want her to do so rather than her trying to like inherit the farm and everything. And so Hachikin kind of becomes a little bit emboldened by the idea of, oh, I can help her study. It's not a problem. You know, I was actually a pretty decent student and my brother actually went to Tokyo U and he still has his notes somewhere. I can do it. But it's kind of this foolishness that he doesn't really understand until after he has to come in contact with his family and face the realities that not everybody is gifted enough to study well enough to get to university and that even if we have dreams and whatnot, there are other ways that we can go about achieving our dreams and I don't know, just living your life, I guess. So he kind of gets that reality check throughout the series, which mm. I think is really nice. It's a little bit more subtle than Greed's, which is like straight out the gate. You just like him and his whole progression. But Hachikin kind of gets getting used to it only because you feel a little bit uncomfortable that he kind of sounds like you. Ah, mm. I never thought about it that Pretty way. Uh-huh. Yeah, because mm. Hachikin is a little, like, tiny bit arrogant in season one. Like, you don't see it because he hides it very well as a very posh student from the metropolitan area. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I won't try to offend you or anything. But he's like a little bit smug about it at times, especially when his classmates come up and try to ask him to help him on science or just help him on math, because all they just know is agriculture at that point. Mm. You know this, but he really ends up becoming humbled throughout the series, which I really like. This actually is kind of relevant to the climate of things today, just like culturally, because this yes. has always been a contention. Unfortunately, is that people out in the countrysides who are more involved with agriculture, they always feel like that they are looked down upon by you know people from the cities with higher educations and stuff. And while I won't comment on the politics or anything like that. Like, that's not the point of this. I do want to make an accurate observation is that you cannot help but deny that there is a bit of condensation, like a condescending tone in the way we talk about people with agriculture and talk about people out in the, the lands that aren't as connected to the cities and stuff like that. That like that is unfortunately a thing that has actually been going on for a very, very long time. And it has created this really large divide between people. And so that's why I think like this character development is actually, despite it being written quite a while ago, it's pretty relevant still today culturally and from the sounds of it across many different kinds of countries. Because obviously this one was written in the context of Japan, but I can definitely see how you know, it has an effect and it has an importance in the U.S. as well. Like, that's my observation of this thing. <laughs> yeah, and I can see that. There's, like, always a bias, right, between the two, and you can see that in Silver Spoon as well. And then, you know, Hachikin yeah. kind of gets it handed to him. He's like, oh, I have all these biases about these people. And usually, I think they're also very genuine, right, because they haven't maybe gone to the city or thing like that, things like that, where it's a little bit messier. So, you know, what they're hopeful yeah. for is really genuine and Hachiken learns about that and sees that and then he realizes wait a second that's that's really wholesome like I should I should learn from them actually I shouldn't be like this I'm not better than them actually because they're their experts not me right mm -hmm. exactly yeah and I kind of felt that because I unfortunately also had a little bit of the bias my both my parents had a college education and so I was raised to similar standards of you shouldn't go like do like farm work you shouldn't do like all this like retail jobs and things like that because you know you need to be smarter to survive in this but then at the end of the day you know i look at these people who actually formed the backbone of our economy with all this production and really trying to eke out a living on lands that maybe have been passed down by their family or was something that they founded and it's actually really hard and they're so they're just as marginalized as a lot of other communities throughout the world as well yes it's a different type of marginalization that you know yes and i think that's what makes it difficult is sometimes even if you know like us we are a part of a marginalized group we're asians you know so we are people of color but it's still a different type a different feel and sometimes it can be a little hard to reconcile the fact that there's different feelings to different types of minority groups and sort of the things of what they face and the problems right. they they have to overcome yeah Right. And the way that I see it for the people who do work in agriculture is that, uh, especially for people who are farmers who have like uh, 
acres of land that was passed down to them is that they're kind of the generation that was left behind mm, because with right. the rise of economy and mass production they don't have a place to stay they don't have a place to make means of themselves mm-hmm. and so a lot of the times they try to encourage their children to maybe get a college education or to seek other um ventures and other fields outside of agriculture because it's not sustainable anymore which is quite unfortunate because agriculture has always been the backbone of any kind of society no matter how far you go back in history it's just that by the 1800s when manu- when art- when manufacturing and production in factories became such a big thing you know a lot of these farmers and agricultural families just fall mm, yeah for sure so that's why I really like Silver Spoon, is that Hachikin gets a dose of it. And not only that, um, Hiroma Arakawa is also writing it from her perspective because she also attended an agricultural school when she was uh, a student in Hokkaido. And so using that perspective of her probably working as a mangaka in Tokyo and her experience in an agricultural world actually brings uh, a sense of realism into the story and um and actually makes Hachikin respect his peers rather than make it seem frivolous. I was about I say. to say like it, I I you know yeah. I was going to ch- call in the fact that she has personal experience with this and there's a reason why she draws herself as a chibi cow. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, as a chibi cow cuz it it goes back to her roots of being in an area that is rather rural. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think yeah. that does bring something more special, unique, and also personal and thus more genuine to the story itself. Right. Because the, the, if we do it in the reverse where it's like a Tokyo uh, or some metropolitan mangaka comes out to the countryside, does research and writes a character about that, it hits a little bit differently because you can't tell if it's truly genuine and sincere enough to understand the plight of these people. There are some people who do an exceptional job of doing something like that. Like, for instance... Uh, Noro Satoru from Golden Kamui does an extensive amount of research on like the Ainu people and the marginalized ethnic minority communities and bring them to light that now there's a big wave of people trying to study the Ainu Yes, I saw that. That was Um, amazing too, yeah. Yeah, and so that's amazing. But very few people, I think, can pull it off that sincerely. Versus from uh, Hiromu's perspective, she can pull it off from the get-go because she's experienced it herself. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, and she's just amazing. I worship the ground she walks, and she's probably would be yeah, freaked out sure. if she heard that. So. <laughs> but I think she's just such an incredible writer, and I cannot wait for her new story because I'm sure it's going to be incredible as well. So yeah, I I'm really looking forward to that because I think her serialization of the Legend of Arsland that came out after Silver Spoon kind of fell a bit flat. Mm-hmm. Um, with a combination of like bad CGI in the anime, and it's kind of semi-incomplete with the actual fantasy novels right, that right. came out mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a little bit disappointed with that, but I hope this one does really well too. I mean, she this might because adap- adapting, like we said in the adaptation episode, adapting and writing originals are quite different. And you know, for all we know, maybe her strengths have always been in her originals versus um, adapting another story into a medium. So that could be the case. But I do have to agree because the author behind Arslan, um, the Legend of Arslan, is also the author behind the Legend of the Galactic Hero. So he is right, yeah. he is a beast <laughs> of a writer on his own. So uh, so it could just be a case of she adapting isn't the isn't sort of like her niche area. It's her original stories that is, and that's totally fine because every writer has their natural strengths and natural flaws. Which, speaking of writing, we've got a story to continue because you left us on a terrible cliffhanger <laughs> on your- I did, didn't yes, I? Yes, it was horrible and we need to know what happens when the lights went, when the, like, the lights went out. Like, I'm terrified for you. I, you're fine, obviously, because you're sitting here or are you? Are you a ghost, Agnes? Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe I, maybe it's, uh, you know, using those, uh, those spirit boxes to pick up my noises very Oh God, oh God, no, 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 we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Are we playing phasmophobia? I don't know. Let's find out. Um, so right after the French guy clicks off his lighter, it's dark in what I think are the catacombs, right? But the air suddenly feels tighter and more hostile, like someone's squeezing my throat. I try to call out after the French guy, um, but all I can hear is just a lot of echoing that bounces off what I suppose are the walls of the catacombs. And I'm trying to feel around at the darkness and st- and 
figure out a way to go back to the entrance that I came out of, which I thought was going to be a lot easier. But it turns out that I got even more lost because I could never find the stairway to go back up to the surface. And it felt like an eternity kind of bumping into jagged walls and like kind of like feeling like the clattering of a skull next to my hip ah. as I brush past it. <laughs> um, and then I start to hear like a chanting or incantation in the distance. And while following the sound and winding through the corridor, I don't know if this is even a good idea to begin with, but I don't know how to turn back at that point. Um, and then finally, there's a, I see like a very faint flicker of light at the end of the corridor. And I try to pick up speed thinking to myself, like, maybe there's a way out. Or maybe there's another entrance which I can make my way out. Or some sort of light source I can see what the hell is around me. And then as I grow closer to the light, the noise also increases. And then I find myself in a new room. It's not really an entrance, but it's a hole in the rocky cave that burst out into light. And what I realize now in hindsight is that the light are made up of torches that line the walls of this makeshift tomb mm-hmm. or crypt. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And the air burns my throat with the overwhelming scent of burnt flesh. And there are robed individuals across from me, their hands hovering over an ornate coffin, like they're casting a spell. And it seems like there's a lot of robed individuals. And as I step fully into that outcrop, they all turn to me. And that's where the story will no. end for today, because we're out of time! No! <laughs> <laughs> See y'all next, next oh, week. Gosh, you're evil. <laughs> well, I am incredibly evil. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, she is right because we are genuinely out of time. So thank you all for listening, for, uh, you know, us talking about our favorite anime character developments. And I hope you guys are on the edge of your seat as much as we are in regards to Agnes's situation. So see you guys all here next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.